0: BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back.
1: Hello and welcome to the Red Box Politics Podcast and The Times, I'm Matt Chorley. In this special bonus episode, I speak to Michael Dobbs, who was so hurt at being sacked by Margaret Thatcher that he created House of Cards 30 years ago. The novel, which became a hit UK TV series, which became a Netflix beer moth before losing its star, Kevin Spacey, in the Me Too wave which swept through the acting world. He's had a front seat for some of the biggest real-life political dramas, predicting the downfall of the powerful and then sending them up on the page and on the small screen. Michael, welcome. It's lovely to be here. Uh, Let's go back to the beginning,
2: though, because before we, we... Why am I saying... Lovely to be here. You are sitting in my office
1: in the House of Lords. <laughs> it's <laughs> so lovely for me to be here. It's lovely <laughs> for me lovely to be break. here. <laughs> lovely for me to be here. Uh, let's before we come to House of Cards and all of that. Yeah. Let's go right back um, to the beginning. You were in 1979 the first person to tell Margaret Thatcher that she was going to be prime minister. Yes. Explain what was your job then, and how did you find yourself in that? You know that that small piece of history.
2: Well, in 1979, it was, it was a different era. We didn't have vast machines to run political parties or election campaigns. And I was a, uh, one of a very small number of people uh, who worked directly for Margaret. And we were part of a, I was her, it was called special duties, which I think <laughs> meant almost anything yeah. that was required. But I would carry around two huge suitcases this is before computers. I had to carry around two huge suitcases filled with everything that I thought she might want to know on tour or for her, her parliamentary appearances for Prime Minister's Question Time. And I've been doing that for, for several years. So, 79 election campaign, I was on the bus, I went around with her everywhere. And your suitcases. Uh, with my suitcases, <laughs> indeed, and my toothbrush. <laughs> and, so, uh, I, and I was with her on the night of the, the actual poll. So I was with her in, in Finchley, Barnet Town Hall, where the Finchley Count took place, uh, while she was waiting for her own declaration. There were, I think there were five of us. There was Margaret, there was Dennis, there was a secretary, there was a, a special branch guy, and I think there was me. There was When I say I think there was me, I know there <laughs> was me, but I, I don't think there was anybody else. And I was, she was waiting rather nervously for the her declaration of her own result. Uh, she knew she was going to win, but there was a lot riding on it. Uh, I was monitoring the results as they were coming through. The picture became very clear pretty early. And for what it's worth, I was the first person to be able to turn around and say, Margaret, congratulations, you've won the Prime Minister.
1: And how how does she react to that? What what, what goes through the mind of someone when, you know, there's a difference between thinking you're going to win and actually getting the news that you have?
2: There was a significant pause as she reflected on this. And then she turned to me and in a very controlled fashion, she said, we shall see, we shall see. (laughs) (laughs) And goodness me, we did for the next sort
1: of 11 and a half years. And so having been, uh, you were then uh, along by along by a side for some time and off and on into different degrees you were there in 1984 when the brighton bomb yep. happened at the grand hotel uh, it's sort of looking back now it seems so extraordinary that, that, that there was a, a hotel blown up where the prime minister was staying it sort of se- it literally seems like another world almost that that would happen in the uk what's your recollection of what happened it it was a very significant attack you're, you're absolutely right
2: although it wasn't the only attack yeah. i mean politics was a, a very dangerous profession at yeah. the time uh, I mean, right at the start of the 1979 election uh, campaign, Harry Neve yeah. was murdered. And extraordinarily, right at the end of Margaret's time in office, uh, another very close ally of hers, Ian Gow, mm. was also murdered by a car bomb. So they were rough, tough times. We all knew people and families that had had suffered from all of this. So the Brighton bomb, yeah, well, it was on a, a pretty big scale. Thank goodness it was a Victorian, an old Victorian hotel, because the party walls in those old Victorian hotels were incredibly stout and withstood the blast, which would have gone sideways. So this is why you might remember looking at the front, the photographs at the front of that hotel, the damage went up and down. Yeah. Not sideways. Had it been a new hotel, a modern hotel, the whole thing would have collapsed and the destruction would have been just even more appalling. But uh, that's why anybody who was in that, that, almost that chimney of destruction, suffered just desperately. I, I, was, I was very lucky, I was very close to that, but not there, although I had spent most of the day in one of the rooms directly beneath the bomb. So it certainly made you think very carefully about how important politics was to you and whether it was uh, whether you should pursue it because it's not just an individual that's involved it's the entire family and all those that you have responsibility for.
1: Do you think that although you're right that there had been other attacks before that and obviously you know, as the troubles played out in Northern Ireland, it was a regular occurrence. Do you think that changed politics in any way, the way that Prime Ministers behave, the way that they interact with the public, or, you know, always at the back of their mind, that they were—they went from being a sort of almost theoretical target to a genuine, it was a genuine real-life threat?
2: I think what it, what it did in a very vivid and direct and personal fashion for many people was it made us all realise that First of all, it wasn't going to go away. And secondly, with the best will in the world, a lot of English people simply didn't know what Mm. was going on in Northern Ireland. It wasn't being bloody or cruel. There was a huge amount of ignorance. Mm. And so it pushed the whole aspect, the troubles of Northern Ireland, right to the very front of mind. And I think a lot of people became determined that they had to find a solution to it one way or another, so we weren't going to allow it to slip back into the into the, the terrible dark days where really it was just a problem for the Northern Irish to sort out.
1: So let's fast forward a few years then. We get to the nineteen eighty seven election. Margaret Thatcher again on course for another stonking victory mm. which everyone believes, apart from her. <laughs> <laughs> oh yes. That's and it. she got in her head in the weeks before the election that things were going badly. She wasn't going to win, and somebody had to pay the price for this. Mm. Why were you the one that had to carry the can for this fear that it was going wrong? It's a very good question. I mean, Wobble
2: Thursday, it was called, a week before the actual vote. And uh, there was a rogue opinion poll that probably appeared in The Times. Um, <laughs> and, and, and all, the, she... all the opinion polls in The
1: Times are very accurate, <laughs> I have to yeah, say. But, <laughs>
2: but I mean, She got it into her mind that she was going to lose, that it was all going wrong, and uh, there were one or two others who thought the same. Complete nonsense. I mean, for anybody who had real political experience, you, you'd at least wait for another uh, opinion poll to confirm. Or wait for the election. On. Well, so, that so, was a bit. Yeah, but, <laughs> but, but anyway, it, it was it was all nonsense. And you, but you ask why was I, why was I dragged in to take the, the flak? Well, I think because she was so furious, so upset. And of course, we didn't realise that she was in incredible pain from a bad tooth, carrying the pain with her for weeks and weeks and weeks and not done anything about it. And I think this had absolutely ground her down. I think the first meeting on that extraordinary wobble Thursday, uh, where she lit up like a firework, was uh, five cabinet ministers, prime minister, five cabinet ministers, and me. So (laughs) given that she wanted a sacrificial lamb, there was only one person in that room that she could really afford to... uh, (laughs) So
1: who else was in the room at that point? uh, uh, Willie Whitelaw, uh, Norman
2: Tebbit, David Young, John Wakeham. Oh, and Stephen Sherbourne, now Lord Sherbourne, who was her political secretary. But it it was one of those moments when she was horribly unfair. She really was to me. I remember watching Willie Whitelaw, that wonderful old soldier who could withstand almost anything, it seemed. I I remember looking up at him and his eyes were rolling, and his oyster eyes were rolling. (laughs) And on the way out, after that awful, awful meeting, uh, he turned around to me and said, there is a woman who will never fight another election campaign. And at first I thought that he was mad because it was quite clear she was going to win and win gloriously.
1: And so then go on and on and on, famously.
2: Well, but then I realised what actually he was saying, that she was creating the seeds of her own downfall. And indeed, everybody was to see that pretty much 18 months later when she was dragged out of Downing Street. I just want to say here that she was horribly unfair to me. It was one of the most painful, painful moments of my professional life. And yet, what does that really matter? I mean, it it prompted me to go on and write House of Cards, but I still regard her as being the greatest peacetime prime minister that the country had. In the 20th century politics kind of rises above petty feelings like that and you know if it took that to enable her to do what she did fine
1: so then after the 1987 election she goes back into Downing street assembles her government ministers appointed advisers, etc you on the other hand go on holiday because you now find yourself out of work yes you grab yourself a bottle of wine and a notepad and a pencil explain what happened so you, you were reading a trashy book your, your wife said stop being a snob about it she, she said, you couldn't do any better. She, she said, you know stop
2: being so bloody pompous. She said, <laughs> if you think you can do any better, go away and do it. And she was very hacked off with me going on about this this book. So, uh, I had, I, in all honesty, I had no ambition to be a a writer. It's a modesty which uh, many of my critics think is entirely justified. <laughs> uh, but but literally, I I sat down in a moment of boredom, beside a swimming pool with that bottle of wine to see. If I could write a book. Yeah. Now, actually, what happened is that I should have been going through therapy. I had been through a really, really tough time. Uh, and I, I should have been on a psychiatrist's couch, probably. <laughs> but instead, I sat down with my pad and my pencil. I finished the bottle of wine. And all I had on that pad were two initials. I had scratched F-U. F-U. <laughs> and, 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 and quite seriously, F-U became... Um, but I came back the next day with another bottle of wine. F.U. became Francis Urquhart. F.U. became his character. And all of a sudden I found myself writing a book called House of Cards.
1: When you're doing that, to what extent is what you're doing sort of, like you said, therapy, settling scores and imagining what you'd like to have happened to a prime minister who'd wrongdoing and what how much of it was just you know let's let's tell a good a good story oh not settling scores at all yeah. if I wanted to settle scores I'd
2: have written the real story of the swinging <laughs> handbag but you know it was no interest to me whatsoever no I, I just found w- what was happening I was just I opened a door into a room that I had never been into before and it was called sort of creative writing and I just discovered that every aspect of it seemed to be of interest to me and eventually more interest to me than anything else I was doing and that was the start of a wonderful accident called um, Becoming a Writer, which has been with me now for and kept my family for, for transformed my life, and it's still transforming my life, for, for 30 years. And I owe it all to being beaten up by
1: Margaret Thatcher. <laughs> so, so thank you, Margaret. <laughs> and then um, how quickly did it then go from the book to it becoming a TV series? It went surprisingly
2: quickly in those days. I think my agent sent the book off to uh, the BBC and they, uh, they lapped it up very quickly. In fact, uh, I think the book came out in 1989 and by the end of 1990, it was on air. Astonishingly, the opening scene of the television version is of Francis Urquhart looking at a framed photograph of Margaret Thatcher. And then turning it face down on his desk with the immortal words, Nothing lasts forever. And astonishingly, it's a beautiful moment yeah. with Ian Richardson, yeah. uh, that, that wonderful actor who played uh, F.U. Astonishingly, that was the very week that Margaret was forced out of Downing Street. Uh, it, I mean, the coincidence was just extraordinary. And everybody thought that I was brilliant, that I planned <laughs> it all.
1: <laughs> I mean, obviously, you can't plan a book and a TV show in time. Absolutely like not. But to what extent, did you? Because you were talking about how you know this, the seeds of someone's downfall are sown a long time before, and the the Machiavellian ways that rivals and enemies can plot against the prime minister to what extent were you sort of conscious of that when you were imagining how a prime minister might be brought down well to a certain extent i was totally conscious of it because yeah. i in, in a way i'd stolen it from shakespeare you
2: know, um, <laughs> from uh, julius caesar, julius caesar okay. you know um, and look every prime minister i can think of with one or two exceptions in a hundred years has had to be forced out of office they get chopped hacked stabbed to death you're too young to remember the last prime minister who went without being pushed out by his colleagues or the electorate. Um, That that was Harold Wilson. He was pushed out by illness. Before that, you've got to go back to the 1930s and Stanley Baldwin. So I'm very conscious of the fact that politics is a cruel business. Just when you get to the very top of the tree is the time when you really should know that they're going to get me.
1: <laughs> they're going to get me.
2: And the only the question clock is, then just yes. yeah, yeah. how long is that clock going to tick and what can I do between now and the time I'm dragged out?
1: We'll talk more about the House of Cards in a moment, but given that you, you sort of saw Margaret Thatcher's downfall, you then went back, you were working for the Tory party for a couple of years during some of John Major's worst mm. times. Are we witnessing now the end, the, the last days of May, or how long do you think she's, she's got in the current political climate?
2: It's very difficult to know, I mean, it's very difficult to know how long she would want to stay or how long she might be allowed to stay. All I can tell you is that my understanding of history is that, as I said, most prime ministers don't get a choice in the matter. They get forced out. It's really difficult to to be too pompous or predictive uh, about this situation because, frankly, I don't think we've ever been in a situation quite like this before. It outstrips all of my uh, political experience. And uh, I've been around for a a few years now. Uh, and if you look around europe almost everywhere old established parties the elites are being put to the sword they've had enough of elites and and all you know just leave it up to us trust us much of that is also going on in this country too and unless we in the establishment actually
1: react and respond to that we are probably going to suffer the same fate now you backed brexit back in Mm. 2016 did you envisage it playing out in the way that it has since is is this where you'd like to have been when you, when you cast your
2: vote? Oh, goodness me, no. I mean, look, I think the negotiations, the whole thing has been, been, a, been an awful mess. But the reason I was a Brexiteer is because of the politics of it. The, dem- the, the EU is undemocratic. I never voted for President Juncker. I never voted for the Commission. I, I can't get rid of them. They won't change themselves. David Cameron tried that. On a, an entirely democratic level, a political level, the economics are important. But fundamentally for me, it's a political issue. I don't like the political direction that the EU is going in, in becoming more and more centralised and less and less democratic. I know Greece, I love Greece, and what I think is happening, what I know is happening in Greece right now, I think is almost criminal what's been inflicted on it. It was quite clear to me that there was going to be a, a, a terrible problem in negotiating our way out of the EU there are a lot of people i'm not saying everybody in the EU but there are some within the EU who see Brexit as undermining everything that the EU stands for which is closer and closer political yeah. union and as such they are going to make it as difficult as possible
1: did you think that leave would win back in
2: 2016 i was i was pretty astonished that yeah leave one because Remain, Remain had all the powers that be, all the big business. The EU's a big business yeah. cartel. And I'm not surprised that big business, those in the establishment, those who are sitting comfortably, would support the system that had made them comfortable. There's nothing, nothing wrong or evil with that, but they had, they had all of the powers, they had all of the money, they had the government behind them. And the, the, the leave campaign was a, a, bit, uh, a bit scrappy, frankly. <laughs> I hated the the whole referendum because this is a on both sides I thought it was pretty pretty awful. Mm-hmm. This is the most important decision we've ever had to make, and uh, I, I thought that the the people deserved rather better than either side gave to them. Um, but you know we are where we are the, the the way that the EU has behaved over brexit has made me even more insistent that we must leave because we're we are now engaged in an experiment. It really is an experiment to see whether it is possible to peacefully and democratically leave the European Union. There are lots of people out there who are saying, no, you can't. Um, we won't let you. Which makes me think, if we can't vote to leave the EU, what does that tell us about the system? To me, the system is wrong. Uh, I'm a passionate European but I find that the European Union, which is simply an administrative thing, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a political organisation, is lacking. It's so lacking that I think we need to get out of it.
1: And so how do you see things playing out the next few months? I mean, my, my hunch is there will be a deal. It'll probably get through Parliament. We leave on March 29th mm. and enter the transition period and mm. all of that. And my sense is that quite soon after that is when Theresa May's future will End up being decided, like you said, probably by forces beyond her control. My reading of this, I mean, I had to say that everything is pretty blurred
2: and confused at the (laughs) moment. But, uh, but what I will be looking for is a deal which, at last and once again, makes us a sovereign nation Mm. where we get to decide uh, what it is we're going to do. And I should be reasonably flexible about precisely how that is Mm. achieved. But. There's so much talk about red lines you know people drawing red lines in the sand and then the wind comes along (laughs) and blows all these red lines away but no I, i want us to be in a position where we are once again responsible and masters of our own destiny i hope that will mean we are still very close emotionally spiritually politically strategically economically close
1: to europe but it must be our choice not theirs As Margaret Thatcher discovered, winning a general election in 1987 didn't protect her from political forces. And even Theresa May getting a deal against the odds might not necessarily protect her either.
2: Look, I'm I'm a conservative. I've been a a, a conservative uh, since I was a a pretty young man. I can see two scenarios coming out of this because all political parties are in trouble right now. I mean, my friends in the Labour Party are in despair uh, and uh, particularly in this House of of Lords. I mean, I've never known them be so miserable about their own party. And the Tories ought to be pretty miserable about their party too, because we are in a degree of trouble. And I can see two scenarios for the Tory party. That we get through this uh, Brexit period, we get out the other side as a sovereign nation, we can start doing the things that we want and feel that we need to do. And I think that the Conservative party could dominate British politics the next 20 years there'll be lots to do lots of exciting stuff to do as well as lots of difficult stuff to do and i think that we could once again be the dominant party of britain however we get this wrong and we could end up like so many other parties in europe we could end up disappearing being split and shattered to to, to nothing and there is nothing out there which says the conservative party has a right to carry on Even existing, let alone governing, we have to earn that. And we're going to have to work extraordinarily hard to make sure that we continue to earn that privilege. Ready to pop the question?
0: This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk.
1: Going back to the referendum campaign, one of the, the well-known names who backed leave during the campaign was Frank Underwood. He wrote a piece of red box for us uh, in the name of Frank Underwood. It was sort of extraordinary, really. Like you said, you had all that success in the early 90s with the book and the British TV show. And then fast forward a couple of decades and it's Mm -hmm. it's completely reborn in America. Uh, How did that sort of come about? And and is this something which happens a lot and it's all, you know, you're you're going to break America and nothing else, you know, you never hear from someone ever again? Well, I I wrote the piece for The Times, for you, I think, with with tongue in cheek.
2: It wasn't meant to be taken too seriously. And, of course... I've sold my house, essentially. This is this is what getting a book made into television requires you to do. It requires you to sell your house, and your house then gets owned by new owners. Now, I've been hugely fortunate because Netflix and the people responsible for the American version of House of Cards said, look, you designed it, you built it, you've lived in it. It's your house as much as anybody's house. Um, we now own it, but please come back. Here's your room. You can do this. And I, I've had a... It's been actually one of the happiest professional experiences of my life, and I never expected to
1: say that when, uh, when, when Hollywood bought it. The, I, I'm an executive producer. Yes, I was going to ask you that, because you see that on, fil- you know, on film and TV. What, what, what does an executive producer do? Well, an executive producer can mean any number of different things. There are some
2: executive producers who have never, ever set foot on set, so essentially have nothing to do. It's a contractual thing. I've not only set foot on set, uh, I I think I'm a pretty good cheerleader for the whole thing. And uh, without being too much of a party pooper and spoiling the whole thing, if you look at season six, go to episode five, you might even see someone like me staring back at you from oh, the
1: television set well, you've, you've spoiled it because i've only got to i've only got to episode four that's the next one i've got wow, to watch that's the next some, one i've
2: got to watch something to look forward to it's it's a uh, it, funnily enough i actually had a they, they gave me a speaking role i mean this is the nice yeah. style of the the relationship i have with them until we realized that because i'm not a member of the actors guild if i spoke a single word the whole uh set would be closed <laughs> down by strikes they'd have to go out and strike so i said i don't want i don't want talk anyway i just want to be like alfred hitchcock just lurking in in the background
1: now as you've brought up the final series obviously the big difference between this series and the previous ones kevin spacey isn't in it he was written out because of the allegations against him and the revelations that swept through hollywood as they have in politics as well was there ever a a consideration just stopping it because actually the end of last series claire underwood becomes president that could have been a good full stop to it what what was behind the decision to carry on with it it was a it was an extraordinary few weeks uh, and
2: really quite a worrying few weeks. I mean, you know, House of Cards is is my baby still. I know it's yeah. grown up and it's now <laughs> its own individual. But it's, uh, it, it was really quite an emotional, n- nerve-wracking time. Um, the, the first decision that was made is that it was going to stop. We ha- we were already shooting season six and everything we'd shot, thrown away, just disappeared. So the the writers um, got together and they were, they were pretty much given a a deadline saying, look, you've got to come up with a totally new series in days, not months, but in days almost. And one which is a fitting tribute to House of Cards because it was going to be the last season anyway. Mm. But we wanted to go out on a high. We didn't want to go out with clouds uh, uh, hanging over us. And so what they did is they sat down and they came up with a, what I think is, is, is a wonderful, wonderful final series, which is totally fresh because it has Robin Wright Claire yeah. as the as the main protagonist, and it, it, it suddenly it makes you start thinking about the whole thing fresh and all over again. So I think it's a it's a really wonderful way to to finish it up. But it really was trial by fire. It was very difficult for a while, and and particularly when you remember that we're talking not a, just about a handful of people, we're talking about thousands of mm. people who depend upon this. This has been going for six years. We've had on set, we've had marriages, we've had deaths we've had babies being born i mean this is a real family and netflix was very careful to try to preserve as much of that as possible and in fact they've succeeded magnificently
1: as a view of the series i think it's been at its best when the main protagonists have been sort of slight underdogs plotting you know, whether it, when it was Chief Whip or Vice President or, or even Claire and Frank plotting against each other. Is that more fun to do the, the sort of underdog plotting, the scheming, the, the Machiavellian stuff, rather than the, it's a, just a different plot, if you like, when it's the president trying to sort of mm. hold back their threat?
2: Well, it, it also adds a, a dynamism to that, the, the, the yeah. whole thing. I mean, you know, how how many seasons do you want to watch of the same guy being president? You yeah. know, I mean, uh, no matter how magnificent it is, there comes a, a natural end to it. But if that is constantly being uh, looked at and, and, and revised and threatened, um, I think it's it's dramatically, it's much more engaging. And that's what we've been able to do. And and for season six, we took advantage of something which wasn't planned but we have now got an entirely fresh president and an entirely fresh set of plotters and everything else. In retrospect, six seasons was going to be about as many as we could get away with, but instead of us ending on a down slope where things were were petering out, we're going out
1: with a bang. And the the sort of broader picture of Me Too revelations, both in the UK and in America, touched on politics as well. Given you've been around politics for a long time, Mm. have you been surprised by the the revelations that we've had and the sort of the way that the spotlight's been turned on a culture in Westminster which actually quite a lot of people in Westminster maybe felt they were aware of but didn't really know the extent of it. In a, in a way I'm I'm quite happy
2: about all of that because what what I do think is that there's been uh, not in Westminster as so much as Hollywood yeah. there's been far too much uh, abuse of power abuse of position. Yeah. You know, I am who I am, so you've got to you know, you've got to do what I, I want and it's not entirely sort of older man on younger woman but that's the majority of the cases it's it's really refreshing that we're never going to go back to the bad old days of somebody abusing their position and knowing that they can get away with it no matter what however i do think that there's a danger of it having gone too far and that everybody wants to jump on the me too bandwagon and and what it's meant to do i think is to deal with very serious abuse of power and and not simply a uh, shall I say a a, a drunken whisper or a, a drunken fumble which which frankly is not the same as sexual abuse and rape and uh, you know we we've, we've had cabinet ministers who have been thrown out because uh, apparently they put a hand on a journalist's knee well I hope if I put my hand on your knee Matt even Don't though I'm doubt. sober <laughs> but, but I won't lose my yeah. but but the point, the very serious point that I'm trying to make is that I'm very glad that this, this has happened because I think we need to take a, a, a fresh look at, at all of this. But I think in many cases it's already gone too far and we need to get the pendulum to swing back so that we can concentrate on the real abuses. What I think has been so damaging is um, everybody running around looking for problems when there are none. Now, just let me go back to something else, which is not quite quite me too. But when I see what's happened to people like Ted Heath, um, Leon Britton, um, Jimmy Tarbuck, Cliff Richard, people who've been accused of the most awful crimes on no evidence whatsoever. And the system has mishandled that horribly. I come from four generations of policemen. I want to believe in the police. Instinctively, I do. But so many of these cases have been handled appallingly because of the public pressure. And we've got to start bringing back a sense of balance to all of this. Otherwise, we'll find we've destroyed everything. And what will happen is that
1: nobody will be interested in getting into public life anymore. And we will all suffer as a result. I feel like I should ask you, do you think then that the Kevin Spacey case is on the end of serious and should have been dealt with, rather than the lesser... I have absolutely
2: no idea. There are allegations that have been made, and they are being investigated. And that is how it it, it should be done. But um, it's being done, uh, as far as I'm aware, quietly, not in the headlines, unlike Cliff Richard, Mm. unlike Liam Britton, unlike the rest of them, who uh, were were really chewed up and spat out before they had a, a chance even to reply.
1: Let's look ahead then. Next year, 30 years after the House of Cards book came out, is it time for a House of Cards sort of British reboot? Is there the, the Machiavellian goings-on in British politics now? Surely is ripe for a reboot. I, I'm just wondering whether
2: whether fiction can actually <laughs> can keep up the, the facts, the realities of what we're going through right now. There will come a time, I hope, where we can revisit House of Cards again because it's an ongoing tale of of people. It's It's the it's character-driven rather than being plot-driven. If you don't get engaged by Francis uh, Urquhart or or Francis Underwood, if you don't actually buy into the characters, the plot itself isn't going to keep you interested. But, I mean, right now, I, I think it's exceedingly difficult to know where politics is going to be in a year or two years' time. And to write something that is going to end up on screen and have somebody invest a whole lot of money into it uh, you've got to have a degree of certainty which at the moment we lack now in a year's time after exit after march the 29th maybe we can sit down and start <laughs> seeing the way that things
1: play out but right now r- right now i don't even have the time <laughs> to, the- Do you, to what extent has politics changed in the 30 years since you wrote it because obviously we've got the internet and twitter means that careers you know rise and fall in the afternoon mm-hmm. and all that sort of stuff but actually the partly because of the building hasn't changed the way that ministers get their red boxes and communicate and uh it's often to like you to say it's often to do with personalities and individuals and how they get on with those around them that hasn't changed hmm. so do you think that the, in a way that's the appeal of house of cards that the story is essentially the same that they might have a mobile phone now instead of a fax machine or whatever but actually the 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 story is still essentially remains true i, I think
2: the story the essential story is pretty timeless it's hmm. endured over millennia let alone uh, years politics has changed in reality uh, it's it's surprisingly despite the whole brexit debate it's, it's surprisingly ideologically free at the moment when i you know we, we started talking about margaret thatcher well you know in those days you had thatcherism versus socialism and everybody pretty much knew what the basics were about uh, nowadays we're in managerial politics and everybody seems to put their their ideals, their, their beliefs to one side. In fact, if you call me an ideologue nowadays, it's a term of abuse. <laughs> Why? I have ideas, I have beliefs, I have values. What's wrong with all that? I don't know. And as a, as a result, I think that politicians today end up running around more and more after passing things, after the latest crisis. Some, I've seen something in the newspapers or on television, something must be done. Instead of actually sitting there saying, look, I know where it is I want to get to. How do we get through today to get to where it is I want to get to? Now that's what Margaret Thatcher was about. And that's what a lot of the great uh, socialist prime ministers like Clement Attlee uh, were about. Uh, but today uh, we see oh, one, one, one great example. It's sort of footage coming from out of Libya, for instance, of the chaos in Libya. Something must be done. We sent in the bombers. So we did something, just made it worse. And then we wanted to repeat that folly in Syria, because what was going on there is horrible and it is tragic. But you, you can't solve these problems by you know, waking up in the morning, um, saying something must be done, doing it, and then pretending that you can go to sleep and forget about it at night. You know, ideology, those values, those long-term values, give you a long-term perspective which hopefully leads you beyond today to tomorrow, next year, and so forth. And that is the only way to resolve these really difficult problems. Otherwise, you end up running around in ever-decreasing circles. And I'm afraid far too much of politics today is running around in ever decreasing circles my goodness me that sounds terribly pompous i must be getting very old
1: <laughs> well you might say that i couldn't possibly comment <laughs> oh, oh thank you michael Dobbs. i could sit and chat to you mm. forever but i know that you've got to get into the mm. house of lords because you want to you want to speak in a debate it's an absolute delight to speak to you house Cards continues on netflix michael dobbs thank you very much great pleasure matt thank you for coming